Welcome to the Sydney Uni EU podcast. Today's talk is from One Samuel and was given by Brian Learn. Brian, I serve on the EU senior staff team. And um, a big welcome to you if you are watching on the live stream or if you're new today in person. Uh, what difference does it make to follow God's ways? What sets apart the person with faith from the person who has none? Why don't you turn to the person next to you and spend just 30 seconds just asking them, what difference do you think it makes to have faith? Alrighty, well, I don't know what you came up with. There's surely many, many things that you could come up with. Uh, But one of the things that I think has got to be up there in terms of the difference that particularly Christianity makes is the issue of mercy and forgiveness. What do you do when someone has wronged you? To pick a timely example, how do you respond when someone makes a joke at your expense? How do you respond when someone slaps you in the face? We're going to explore this in our passage today. We're in the second week of our series in the book of 1 Samuel. And for for today, I want us to look at three chapters in the book of Samuel, chapter 24, 25, 26, which form a kind of sandwich pattern in the, uh, in the story of David's life. Now, the, the first chapter, chapter 24 and chapter 26, are very similar stories. They're kind of like the bread of the sandwich. And then chapter 25, the chapter that we just read, is a bit like the meat of the sandwich. And we're going to look at the bread first, and then we'll look at the meat today. It's instructive, I think, that this, this story that we just read comes in the middle of this sandwich. So we'll look at the bread first. In chapter 24, we're told a story about how David spares Saul's life. Saul's already been hunting David for a little while now. In fact, Saul's so obsessed with killing David that previously we read, we didn't read it together, but if you read in 1 Samuel, he's killed an entire town of priests for protecting David and helping him instead of handing him over. Saul has himself set on eliminating David as a threat to the kingdom and anyone associated with him. So Saul finds himself getting a report from David uh, about David. Sorry, uh, his location is in the wilderness. So he's now in the areas looking for David with his army. And while he's there, he decides to go into a cave to relieve himself for some privacy. Now, what he doesn't realize is that deep inside that very cave is David and his men hiding. Now, I know this is kind of random, um, but sometimes I think about what it would be like when Jesus returns. No one knows when he will return. You can't predict it. But when it happens, everyone will know. Everyone in the entire world will know. Uh, The thing is, there's... 8 billion people on the planet, at any one point in time, there's got to be millions of people you know, on the toilet, and it would be just really awkward to be on the toilet while Jesus returns, and you're just like, oh wow, Jesus is returning, and anyway. So, now the point of that was, it would be super awkward to be in the middle of a poo when, you know, you know your enemy comes up and stabs you in the back. So, 
Anyway, it's awkward for Saul, but fortunately for him, that's not what happens. What happens is David's men say, God has given Saul into your hands. This is your chance. You can kill him now. All of this is over. You don't have to run anymore. But David refuses to do it. Instead, what he does, he sneaks up and he cuts off just the corner of his robe. And what happens is uh, even that, David, his conscience is stricken. And, uh, and he says, I shouldn't have done it. It was wrong. How can I take what does not belong to me? How can I show such disrespect for the one that God has anointed as his king? So David goes out after Saul has gone out and he appeals to him. He says, why are you chasing me? And he shows him the evidence of his mercy. I cut off the corner of your cloak. I could have killed you, but I didn't. And he leaves the judgment to God. Now, that's the first piece of bread in the sandwich. The second piece of bread in the sandwich is chapter 26. Two chapters later, we have this other account, which is also an account of David sparing Saul's life. Now, this time, instead of being in the vulnerable position of being alone in a cave, Saul is encamped with his 3,000-strong battalion of select troops. He's in the center of the camp with his most trusted royal guard, and he's surrounded by all these, uh, by his men, so that no one can take him by surprise. And they're sleeping, you know, in the center of the camp now. And instead of David now just happening to, you know, by coincidence, Saul comes into his cave, this time he takes one of his men and he goes, he sneaks up into the camp while they're sleeping. Uh, and they're in such a deep sleep that not a single person wakes up. Again, they have the perfect opportunity to kill Saul. Saul's just right there. He's fast asleep. All is men are asleep. He's got his spear by his head. He's got a water jug. And his man says to him, I can kill him with one strike of that spear. That's what you need to do if you're going to try to not wake anyone else up. Uh, and he can do it. But David doesn't let him do it. He says his life is in God's hands, not mine. He might die some other way, but not by my hand. So I refuse to take his life. Now this time, he takes the spear and the water jug that's right by his bedside. That's the evidence that he could have done it. He could have killed him, but he didn't. Now when he gets out again, he confronts Stahl again. He says, why are you pursuing me? I've done nothing wrong. And you chase me for no reason. And presents the spear and the water jug as evidence that he had that chance, but he didn't do it. Now these stories have a lot to teach us. Have a look at how David refuses to avenge himself. Imagine if someone had it as their mission to ruin your life. They're slandering you, making fun of your family, saying all sorts of unfair things about you, leaving nasty comments on your Instagram posts, all of that kind of stuff. And imagine that they, they have all the power in this situation and you have none of it. And so you can't do anything about it at all. Now imagine now that some extraordinary coincidence happens that allows you to have the opportunity to get back at them. Imagine that you know something that no one else knows, but if you were to reveal it, that would completely turn the tables and throw them under the bus. This is one of those rare opportunities that you can get that sweet, juicy, delicious revenge in a way that feels so satisfying and completely justified. 
It takes a lot of self-control to not take that opportunity and to show self-restraint instead of taking advantage. It's gutsy of David to have two opportunities to get back at Saul and turn both of them down. Now, what's going on here? Listen to what Saul says to David at the end of chapter 24. He says, you are more righteous than I, he said. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. There's a righteousness about not getting your own back. There's a righteousness about not claiming your own rights. And there's an honor in treating well even those who have treated you badly. David himself says, may the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. David does not claim justice for himself, but not because he doesn't believe in justice. It's not that David doesn't think that Saul's in the wrong. He is. He's not that he doesn't think that he's not accountable for his actions. He is accountable to God. But David refuses to make himself the judge of Saul. Now, Jesus will echo this same attitude a thousand years later when he teaches his disciples not to judge others. You shouldn't judge, firstly, because you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You shouldn't judge, second of all, because you need to deal with your own problems first. Why do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? And thirdly, more than that, you should do good to the one who persecutes you and bless the one who curses you because that is what your heavenly father is like. That's what God is like. God sends rain on the good and the evil. His patience and care extend even to those who don't deserve it. He's a God of mercy, of forgiveness, of a God of second chances. Now, 3,000 years ago, David already knew that this was God's way. Now, let's stop and apply this for a second. To imitate David is not to ignore the issues of justice. David's clear about his innocence. He points out the injustice of the situation, and he appeals to Saul. This isn't just him laying down, just saying, oh, kill me now. But he refuses to take justice into his own hands. He doesn't take revenge. He doesn't excuse Saul's actions, but he also doesn't use them as an excuse for his own actions to do the same thing back to him. Now, it's a human thing to fight fire with fire, to bring justice with a vengeance. But God says, leave that to me. So the next time you are offended, what are you going to do? Someone says something that's needlessly rude. Instead of getting up in their face about it, turn the other cheek. Someone cuts you off in traffic. Instead of huffing and puffing and honking your horn at them, say, they didn't have to do that. But maybe they're in a hurry for some reason. Someone holds a grudge against you for no discernible reason. Instead of obsessively planning how you might poke a thousand needles into their body, let it go. Wish them the best. Bless, don't curse. Now, I want to move on to the meat of the sandwich, but before I do, I want to address a question that you might have as you're reading through the book of 1 Samuel. And in fact, it's a question that loads of people have when they're reading the Old Testament. The question is, what are we supposed to do with all the violence in the Old Testament? Specifically, why is it that David's praise right here, we've just seen it, 
about how he's so merciful to Saul, and he shows him, you know, he doesn't repay um, evil for evil and so on. But on the other hand, he's also praised for killing tens of thousands of Philistines. How does that square together? Now, we could talk for hours on this topic, honestly, but we don't have that kind of time. And so I just want to give you some very quick pointers. I've got 11 quick points about this issue um, to maybe help you a little bit on your way as you're trying to process it for yourself. Number one, do not murder is one of the Ten Commandments. It's a basic starting point of the Bible that human life is sacred and is, not, is protected by God and other people's lives are not to be treated lightly. Number two, the prohibition on murder doesn't, however, preclude the possibility that there are some cases in which killing may be appropriate or necessary. Capital punishment was a norm in those cultures at that place and time, and so was warfare. Number three, in the Bible's bigger picture, death entered the world because the first humans, Adam and Eve, sinned. And death comes to all of us because we all sin, because we all inherit their fallen nature as well. Number four, when Israel is commanded to drive out the other nations as they enter the promised land, Part of the context is that those nations are not innocent. They are unjust nations that follow abhorrent practices, including the sacrifice of their own children in worship to their false gods. Number five, warfare in this part of the Old Testament is never about military might. God is the one who fights the battles. God is the one who wins the victories, and therefore Israel is not not to be afraid of the size of their armies or of the advanced weaponry of the enemy. Number six, even in the midst of imminent judgment, there's always room for mercy for those who turn to the one true living God. Individuals, households, even whole tribes, we read, receive mercy, they're all saved when they recognize the sovereignty of Israel's God and attach themselves to him over and against their own nation's gods. Number seven, God uses Israel as an instrument of judgment against other nations, but that does not make Israel more righteous than the other nations. In fact, what we read as we keep reading the story of the Bible is that Israel itself fails to set herself apart from the nations and they themselves get judged. God uses other nations to be instruments of his judgment against Israel as well. Number eight, since the time of Israel's exile, God's people are no longer commanded to execute God's judgment on others. And part of that is because, because God's people are no longer a political theocracy, and part of that is because we see from the story of the Bible that our biggest threat is our own sinfulness, not the sin of others. Number nine, it's important also to acknowledge that the Old and New Testaments are situated in cultures that are collectivist, a lot more collectivist than our individualist Western culture. And that is, we're individualist because we think, we take for granted that each person ought to be treated as an independent person an independent actor. But they would have taken for granted that individuals do not exist independently of others. Anything that an individual does always has an impact on your family, on your tribe, on your nation. 
And so they would not have seen it as unusual, for example, that a whole household might be judged for the sins of the father. Number 10. It's also the case that in the broader biblical context, there is a fate that's worse than death. The judgment to come at the final day brings perfect justice, both to those who have done ill and restoration for those who have suffered injustice. And then finally, number 11, God does not delight in the death of a sinner. He's made a way for all those who repent to find refuge in Jesus. And he promises to show mercy to all who trust in him. Death and judgment come to us all. And that is really quite an unbearable weight to carry. And that's why we hate talking about it. We don't like talking about death. We don't like talking about judgment. But this is one of the big existential problems that all of us have to face. We're not in control of this brutal world. We can't slow down this brief life. And therefore, every major religion has found it necessary to give some kind of hope. Some hope that's, that goes beyond death, even. Some way to escape the final judgment as well. And the Christian answer is that Jesus came to suffer and to die for us. To take our judgment. For him to bear the unbearable weight so that we could have an unshakable hope. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. His resurrection is our hope. The hope Jesus brings will go with you through whatever hardship you face, through whatever suffering you endure, and right into the valley of death. In the end, God will not just make things right. He'll restore and renew things in such a way that we'll marvel forever at his glory and all our tears will be wiped away. We do not need to be anxious about the injustices that we see in the world. Well, that was supposed to be just an aside. Um, let's get ourselves now into the meat of the sandwich that we were looking at. Uh, in chapter 25, right in between this chapter, uh, chapter 24 about David sparing Saul, and chapter 26, David sparing Saul again, we have this story about David in, or also still um, running away from Saul. And, uh, and let's just recap what we read about in chapter 25. Here's a guy who's super rich. He owns a big farm. It's got lots of sheep, lots of goats, and it's shearing time. Shearing time is a time of festivity. It's a time when you'd have a big feast, a time of celebration, a time of plenty. Problem is, this guy's name is Nabal. Nabal means fool. And that's what he is. Now, just because you're rich doesn't mean you're not a fool. Just because you own the farm doesn't mean you're not a fool. Just because you're married to an intelligent and beautiful spouse does not mean you're not a fool. Well, anyway, meanwhile, David's on the run from Saul. And when he learns that it's shearing time for Nabal and Carmel, he knows that there will be plenty to go around. And so he goes to Nabal to ask for his hospitality. And he reminds him that David's men had protected the shepherds and the sheep while they had been there um, earlier in their story. 
Now, it's worth noting that David operates in a culture that's built on favors and social obligations. Uh, it's right for, uh, for David's men to offer their protection to, um, to the shepherds while they're in their company. And it's the right thing for Nabal to offer hospitality to David when he's in need. But Nabal answers in such a cold and individualistic way. He has no regard for his social obligations. He says, 25 verse 10, Who is this David? And who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I've slaughtered from my shearers and give it to the men who are coming from who knows where? Now just notice how Nabal's foolishness comes out. It comes from this antisocial independence. I made it on my own, you can make it on your own. It's an insistence on rules and rights. What's mine is mine and you have no right to it. And it's delusional in thinking that he didn't benefit from David and from others to get to where he is. Now, in the 1960s and 70s, an economist called Milton Friedman argued that businesses and corporations have one and only one social responsibility, and that is to increase profits. Basically, as long as what you're doing is technically legal, your only interest, if you're a corporation, is to increase the wealth of your shareholders. And that's the view of business that's dominated Western economies for the last 50 or 60 years. Now, that's pretty similar, actually, to what Nabal thinks. He has no social responsibility to his employees, to his neighbor, to his society, or to the wider world. His priority is maximizing his profits. And he'll only do what's legally required rather than what's socially cohesive. Well, he responds to David saying, no way. And David hears back from his messengers and then he says, each man strap on your sword. He's offended. He's angry. He's about to avenge himself by killing Nabal and all of the men in his household. Now here in the meat of the sandwich, I think we're meant to see a stark inconsistency in David's character. He will show such mercy and restraint with Saul, but now he's provoked into a rage with Nabal. The principle of not avenging himself, which serves him so well with Saul, is nowhere to be seen in this chapter. Nabal and Saul are both fools, but the way of righteousness with both of them is not to pay back evil for evil, wrong for wrong, offense for offense. It is to patiently wait for God and to allow God to be the true judge, the one who brings justice. Now David is the man after God's own heart. He is the one who's the, who is the opposite of Saul. He is the savior of Israel. But now the savior needs a savior. He needs to be talked down from the cliff that he's about to jump off. He's making a mistake. And his salvation comes through the wife of Nabal, this woman called Abigail. Now, when Nabal answers foolishly to David, his servants go straight to Abigail. They recognize that she has the sense to see what's coming and the ability to do something about it. And so she acts quickly. She puts together the biggest Christmas hamper you've ever seen. It's got bread and wine and sheep and grain and dried fruit. And she sends all of it as a gift to David's men. And then she herself goes to speak with David. She doesn't excuse Nabal's folly. 
She takes responsibility on herself. She acknowledges David's position and his status before God, and she reminds him that his righteousness is linked to his mercy. He does the right thing by not shedding blood unnecessarily. Now, Abigail really is the opposite of Nabal. He had burnt a relational bridge, but she rebuilds it. How does she do that? By taking initiative through an abundant act of generosity, by listening to her employees, the giving of honor and respect. She meets David's needs, and she gently but skillfully ushers him back from the cliff as she appeals to the best in him. She's assertive but not arrogant. She's decisive but not presumptuous. She has the insight to see the Lord at work in David, and she has the faith that God will protect him um, in the future. And in the end, she proves to be the one who really has the discernment and wisdom in this situation. Now, when David refuses to take Saul's life, he shows what mercy looks like. But when David's preparing his men to destroy Nabal and his household, he's really stepping onto thin ice. And David's foolish enough to make this vow to God. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. And this sort of thing was the kind of thing that got Saul into trouble when he... Uh, when he um, ended up cursing his own son, Jonathan. Now for us, there are many things that can make us angry and even justifiably angry. Injustice in the world should upset us. The dishonoring of God's name should offend us. People getting away with wicked deeds should not get away with it. But while it's not wrong to be angry, take care what you do with that anger. To act in anger, especially to try to gain justice for yourself, is to step onto thin ice. In carrying out your angry attempt to gain justice, to make things right, it's easy to slip and to fall into the icy waters of guilt yourself. We need to know that God knows about the injustices that happen to us and to others in the world. He will judge and he will make things right. So therefore speak out, but don't slander. Advocate, but don't avenge. Pray, pursue justice, persist, all without persecuting in return. Lift up your cause, but without bearing false witness. And perhaps, just perhaps, you'll come into a moment in your life in which you might play the role of Abigail for someone else. Where you might see someone about to fall off a cliff and you have a chance to talk them down. You might see someone stepping onto thin ice and you can steer them back before they fall. It's a noble thing to prevent someone else from sinning. It takes courage and initiative, generosity and respect, honesty, wisdom, and humility. That conversation is not easy, and it takes great relational care. But it's worth having that hard conversation. 
You would push your friend out of the path of an oncoming train. You should gently, courageously persuade your friend to honour God. Let's try to bring this to a conclusion. In so much of David's life, he shows us how to honour and to trust God. When he steps out in faith to defend Israel against her enemies, he shows that faith is fearless. That God is the warrior who fights our battles. That he is in control. When David shows self-restraint and mercy and refuses to kill Saul, he shows us that there's a righteousness to recognizing God's right to judge. And there's a righteousness and Faith shows itself in this unreasonable goodness, in repaying good for evil, blessing for cursing, righteousness for unrighteousness. But in the midst of David's goodness, there's this meaty story about how David wasn't perfect. He could make the same kinds of mistakes as Saul did. He could be ruthlessly careless. He could neglect the truth that vengeance belongs to the Lord. David may be a little hero, a saviour, but even this little saviour needs a saviour. Ultimately, the story of David shows us that we need someone even greater than David. Someone who shows mercy without fail. Someone who, like Abigail, will build a bridge of relationship with us. Who will steer us away from the cliff. Who will restore us to righteousness. David's the shadow Jesus is the reality. He's the one whose character never fails. And though we may live in a world under judgment, if you trust in him, you don't carry one speck of the weight of that judgment on yourself. Because Jesus has carried it all. So let's live in the light of that reality. In all your relationships, honour him in love and grace and righteousness. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyuneeu.org.